0: Mark Joseph Stern, you know what I love?
1: What do you love?
0: A surprise ending.
1: (laughs) There is almost always a surprise twist at the end of the Supreme Court term. Not every year, but they happen more often than you think, and that's the fun of this job. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts for Slate. Sometimes it's a twist that is just gut-wrenching and horrifying, but every once in a while it's a twist that makes you a little bit less depressed about democracy. Hold it. Which twist was it today? Uh, well, it was both of those.
0: <laughs> On Thursday, the Supreme Court surprised Mark by handing down two decisions that flipped the way he thought about the justices and could flip the way democracy works in this country yeah, I called it good news, bad news at the Supreme Court,
1: yep. that's that's pretty much it. That's something even your grandma could understand, right? I mean, <laughs> like hundreds of pages of opinions, but that's the that's the upshot. Some good news, some bad news. Everyone goes home feeling like they won something and lost something and lost something yeah.
0: today on the show, the first year of a more conservative Supreme Court is coming to a close. What the big decisions about gerrymandering and the census, Tell us about who the new justices are and how they intend to rule. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. That means no more waiting for quote normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. to me, it was a battle. It was a fight. You may have read the story of Eugene Carroll. She's a journalist, and last week she accused President Trump of assaulting her in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room back in 1996. She wrote about the incident in her upcoming book. New York Magazine ran an excerpt. Today, on Slate's Trumpcast, you can hear my colleagues Virginia Heffernan and Dahlia Lithwick talk to Eugene Carroll. They ask her what it's been like to accuse the sitting president of sexual assault, because even now, Carroll doesn't quite think of it that way. I never said it. I don't use that word. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be pictured as a woman who's thrown on the ground, has her bodice ripped, and some man has his way with her. Mm -hmm. And she's left like a piece of rag on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. Raped, you know, secondhand goods. According to E. Jean Carroll's allegation, this was rape. But that's not how E. Jean Carroll thinks of it now. You know, went to battle, had a fight, fought. Got out. That's, you know, that's it. The other word is just too weighted. Listen to the entire interview now on Slate's Trumpcast. I told Mark Joseph Stern I wanted bad news first. So we began by talking about the Supreme Court's gerrymandering decision. Here are the basics. The court was ruling on whether it's okay for one political party to draw district lines that ensure their rivals will not come to power. In Maryland, the Democrats were doing this. In North Carolina, it was the Republicans. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts basically said the court's hands are tied here. They can't make political decisions. In the case of partisan gerrymanders, that means the states are going to have to regulate themselves. So I asked Mark, if he could explain the Chief Justice's reasoning.
1: So there's this idea that certain kinds of constitutional disputes are just beyond the court's ability to remedy, uh, that the court doesn't have the right expertise, that it's not the province of the federal judiciary to say what the law is in this instance. We've forgotten a lot of this today, but for a very long time, legislative districts were drawn with totally different populations, uh, especially on the state level. You'd have one district with a few thousand people and another with tens of thousands of people which meant that one vote literally counted for way more than another right and scotus just turned those away for decades and said, we're not entering the political thickets because these lines are drawn by politicians. We are not politicians. We don't want to get all up in their grill and interrogate them about why they're doing this and try to fix it. And so for many years, depending on what part of a state you lived in, your vote could count 10, 20, 30 times more than a neighbor down the street who happens to be in a different district.
0: The thing is, the Supreme Court eventually put a stop to this. They weighed in on what was perceived as a political matter.
1: Yeah, that's right. In the 1960s, the Supreme Court decided that actually wasn't a political question uh, and applied the one-person-one-vote standard that most of us know and love today. But today, also, the uh, political question rears its ugly head once again, and we learn that partisan gerrymandering, well, that is just too political, and the court thinks that it's not for judges to decide. Politicians get pretty much free reign here.
0: I have to tell you, though, when you describe how we thought about this previously, that does sound exactly like what we're talking about here, which is diluting the vote. And Roberts cited this historic precedent. He talked about how it used to be that we would have these general ticket elections when people were sending their representatives to Washington, which meant that one party could get a huge amount of the vote, like 40 percent of the vote and not get a single seat right in congress in a state and he says like you know what's happening now is similar and that was okay before why doesn't that argument hold water with you (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the the simple answer is that it is so much easier to draw extremely gerrymandered maps today uh, using this very sophisticated software, bringing in experts like Thomas Hoffler, the deceased GOP gerrymandering guru, in a way that just totally locks the minority party out of power indefinitely. Uh, it, it is a new kind of gerrymandering. It, yes, we've had this around for a long time. Uh, but what we're seeing today is so targeted, so surgical in how it dilutes votes uh, that it really is a kind of infringement on individual civil liberties. We're talking about Mapmaker sitting in a room looking at the party that you have supported, looking at your political expression and saying, we're going to penalize you for that. We're going to punish you for your political expression by intentionally diluting the power of your vote. And that is what makes this a kind of civil liberty issue in addition to, more broadly, uh, a kind of democracy issue, um, because this is about retaliation against political speech, which typically the Supreme Court says is a big no-no.
0: You know, last time you were on, you talked about how all these gerrymandering cases basically go right up to the Supreme Court because of just how it works. To me, this ruling, it felt like Justice Roberts being like, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. I, and this is something he talked about at the oral arguments, right? He he does not want to have to deal with these cases. And he has what is not an unreasonable fear that because SCOTUS would have to hear every single partisan gerrymandering appeal, that it would become entangled with these cases that, you know, it would gain this appearance of favoring one party or the other, uh, becoming too enmeshed in this process. Um, you know, that is probably the best point he makes, but I will say that if he had just done what what the liberals asked him to do in dissent and laid down this clear standard, it would have been pretty easy to just issue summary affirmances or reversals of lower court decisions. SCOTUS doesn't have to have months of drama over every case that hits his docket. They can really just say, we think you got it right or we think you got it wrong and send it back down. That was a tool in Robert's toolbox that he decided not to not to use, and instead claimed that he would have had no choice but to spend the rest of his years on the bench adjudicating every single partisan gerrymandering claim.
0: <laughs> you mentioned the dissent from Justice Kagan, and you said it was one of the strongest of her career do you want to talk a little bit about what she said when she wrote this dissent?
1: Yeah, and it's important to put this in context. You know, she read this from the bench and she she's only done that twice before and both times That's were a big in, deal, right? That's like, a big deal. usually the dissent isn't read. Yes, it's unusual. Usually they, they do it maybe once or twice a term, if at all. Uh, and it signals that they think the court just got it grievously wrong. As Kagan said, she was deeply saddened by this decision. And, and it's not surprising she chose to read her dissent because in the other two cases, in which she has uh, read the dissent from the bench, Uh, she was also sort of bemoaning the court's attack uh, on democracy and self-governance. This is a big point for Kagan. It's probably uh, the biggest uh, sort of theme in her jurisprudence, um, that this court should be protecting democracy, protecting individuals' right to govern themselves, not butting in where it doesn't belong, but also stepping in when individuals really do need protection against these kind of malign forces um, that would... don't know, attack the foundations of democracy itself. Um, and so here she's saying, look, this court has a lot of power and it doesn't flinch when it wants to use it. Nobody would accuse this Supreme Court uh, of being modest or humble in its exercise of judicial power. But here, of all places, it decides to throw up its hands and give up and say, eh, eh, we can't really do anything about this. And that, to her, is just a catastrophe because voters in many states have nowhere else to turn if they want to fix partisan gerrymandering. They might not have a ballot initiative process uh, or a liberal state Supreme Court or a, a governor who can veto gerrymandered maps. They might be locked into these gerrymanders. Only the federal courts could have helped them. And now Robertson said, sorry, federal courts, you don't get to do anything.
0: Yeah. And Roberts was basically saying, listen, you know, we can't decide this. You know, your legislature should fix it. Other people should fix it. But of course, those places have refused to fix it consistently. And part of what makes this ruling so challenging, I think, from a progressive viewpoint, is that the lower courts had kind of gotten their themselves together here on this. And they'd figured out how they were going to address this. And it seems like the Supreme Court is really out of step with them.
1: Absolutely. It it was, I would say, a judicial consensus among the lower courts, among both Democratic and Republican appointees. You had one of the most conservative judges on the Fourth Circuit uh, and also a very conservative judge on the Seventh Circuit, both writing opinions, striking down partisan gerrymanders, seeming to sort of anticipate that SCOTUS would back them up or at a minimum appeal to SCOTUS's conservatives to say, look, guys, we can do this. Please trust us. Um, And SCOTUS ended up not trusting them, obviously. Uh, So
0: what happens with all these cases now?
1: They all get vacated. I mean, every partisan gerrymandering case in federal court, and there are a ton of them in not just Maryland. Uh, and North Carolina, but also Ohio and Michigan uh, and some other cases, they're all going to get tossed out. All of those hours of trial and testimony and hearings, all of the thousands of pages of filings and decisions, uh, all of that, it's all mooted. It's all gone. It doesn't matter. Throw it on a pile and just burn it up because Roberts has shut the courthouse doors to these claims. They are done pretty much forever.
0: So do you expect partisan gerrymandering is going to spike?
1: So it's really tough to say because, you know, partisan gerrymandering happens almost everywhere, everywhere except states with independent commissions. Um, But it's most flagrant in swing states for obvious reasons, right? You've seen one party, the Republican Party, seize control of a a state house and then carve up all the districts to make sure it will never lose its power. That's what happened in North Carolina. It's what happened in Michigan and Ohio. Um, And some of those states are now moving toward a better system. So Michigan just got an independent redistricting commission. North Carolina has a very progressive Supreme Court that may put limits on this because there's still room here under state constitutions. We've talked about how, you know, there are different standards under the state and federal constitutions. Surely some state courts will step in to kind of fill the void here. So and I guess
0: if you've already appointed an independent commission, there's like no backsees on that.
1: Well, hopefully not. I mean, you know, the the Supreme Court only upheld independent commissions by a five to four vote, with Justice Kennedy providing the fifth vote. Roberts dissented from that. He wanted to strike down independent redistricting commissions. Uh, today, he praises them as an alternative to partisan gerrymandering. So it's a little unclear if he's evolved or what. Um, but yeah, I mean, you are seeing some movement. But let me just tell a, a quick story from the opinion that both the the majority and the dissent mention. Uh, Missouri voters went to the, the voting booths last year and uh, passed a law that created essentially an independent map maker to draw legislative districts. Great story, a-, a triumph for democracy. Guess what's happening right now? Republican lawmakers are in the process of abolishing that reform, returning the power of gerrymandering to themselves. So all of these reforms are I mean, not weak, but kind of fragile, and they can be reversed and in some instances absolutely will be.
0: So the other big case today was the census case. The majority wrote that the census cannot add a question about citizenship. The ACLU had argued that the question was racist, basically, but that isn't actually the argument that caught on at the court.
1: Right. Um, So what the court decided (laughs) very, very narrowly, um, and essentially by a five to four vote with uh, Chief Justice John Roberts joining the liberals, is that uh, the Trump administration didn't give its actual reason for adding a citizenship question to the census. Now, what is that actual reason? Uh, Roberts says, well, we don't really know. All we know is that the reason you gave us which is that the administration wants to better enforce the Voting Rights Act, which by the way, it hasn't enforced literally at all, Uh, that that reason is not true, that it's a, quote, distraction. And then under federal law, uh, a distraction doesn't cut it. If uh, if the administration wants to alter the census, it has to give its real reason. So that's a big deal because it blocks the citizenship question. But it does leave the future of this question kind of up in the air for now.
0: Yeah, because it seems to kind of say you could go ahead and add a citizenship question. Just don't be a jerk about it.
1: Yeah, uh, that is, I think, the upshot of Robert's opinion. Now, the the important thing to note here is that the Trump administration has been saying forever that its deadline for printing the census forms is June 30th. That would be in just a couple days. So obviously it was trying to force the Supreme Court's hand to rule in its favor really fast. That has now backfired a little bit. uh, And we're going to have to see what happens. Trump is claiming he wants to put off the census. Uh, That's not actually constitutional um, because it's required every 10 years. Uh, We'll see what happens. But it, it does seem difficult for the government to come back with a better reason and get it through court in time for the census process to formally begin.
0: But it sounds like you're setting me up for a sequel here. (laughs)
1: that is very possible. You could absolutely have the government turn around tomorrow, say, okay, 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 you got us. That wasn't our real reason, but here's our real reason. And that would begin working its way through the courts. And we might all be back at SCOTUS arguing about the census in the fall. I I just don't think Roberts wants to deal with it again. Uh, I think he wants this to be his last word on the question. So I don't know if he would really buy into that. But if... Trump is pressing his uh, his lackeys to try to move this forward, they may feel like they have no choice but to try again. I read
0: one analysis that was pretty interesting, and it basically argued that these two rulings, they show how when the Supreme Court rules on a conservative issue, like in a conservative way, the court will establish sweeping precedent. The way with gerrymandering, they're saying, we're just not going to consider these anymore. Doors shut. See ya. Bye bye later. Whereas when you're looking at a more progressive issue, the winds are much more narrow. I wonder if you buy that.
1: Wow, I'm going to steal that point for my Supreme Court panel next week. Um, definitely agree with that. Uh, and it's not hard to see why. It's because anytime there is an ostensibly progressive decision from the Supreme Court, it's because there is a crossover more frequently than not, Roberts these days. Uh, and he is an expert at giving the liberals just enough so that they feel like they want a victory but not so much that the ruling would ever come back to bite him when he wants to lay down more conservative rulings that's what he did in the ACA cases that's what he's done in the census case so anytime he gives liberals just a you know a few crumbs they all say oh thank you so much mr. Chief Justice we're so glad about that then he turns around and shatters their hopes and dreams uh, that's the way he operates and it's going to be that way for the indefinite future because there's no more Kennedy on the bench. Kennedy swung far right sometimes, and then he swung far left sometimes. He could be extremely liberal and he could also be extremely conservative. Roberts is not that guy. When he is quote liberal, what he's really doing is inching toward the center and kind of giving liberals a ticket good for one ride only.
0: (laughs) I love that. A ticket good for one ride only. Um, Okay, so these decisions were also interesting for one more reason to me, which was, They were pretty much the opposite of what you predicted when you came in after hearing the arguments in these cases. You were like, I think the Republicans are going to save gerrymandering. A couple of them live in Maryland and they're getting screwed out of voting for the Republicans that they want. And, you know, you thought, "Okay, well, I really think that census question is going to be in there. I think it's going to work out. So. Obviously, complete opposite. Yep. I I wonder how you are rethinking how you see these justices and the way they rule.
1: Yeah, so maya culpa for calling it wrong. I, you know, I apologize for that. Um,
0: well, I'm gonna say it was wrong in the letter, but maybe right in the spirit. I
1: don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll go with that. I like that, Thank you, Mary. <laughs> uh, it was a little bit of wish casting, I'm sure. But I, I guess I expected Justice Kavanaugh to be a little bit more like his predecessor, Justice Kennedy, and uh, to have an interest in sometimes not necessarily swinging left but following his values in a direction that sometimes sort of leads him to a progressive result. And that would have been so easy for him to do in the gerrymandering cases because you have this this smoking gun evidence in really both North Carolina and Maryland that the whole point of these maps was to discriminate uh, on the basis of viewpoints, dilute the votes uh, of individuals who support the opposite party. And, And I expected Kavanaugh to see how unjust that was, not just because he lives in a gerrymandered district, but because the First Amendment is supposed to have a kind of neutral operation, right? It's it's good for liberals sometimes, it's good for conservatives sometimes, that's how free speech shakes out. And instead, Kavanaugh just, uh, he kind of bucked the Kennedy tradition and went with the conservatives, and that surprised me. Uh, With Roberts, it's a little more complicated. Uh, You know, Roberts always does like to strike a balance, strike a compromise in these blockbuster cases in a way, like I said, that gives both sides a little bit and kind of diffuses the political tension around them. I think I should have seen his census vote coming, um, but I just wasn't sure at oral arguments that he was willing to call the Trump administration out for lying. That is a big thing, a big step for a Republican justice uh, to do when there is a Republican administration saying, please cover for us. Um, But to his credit, Roberts did it. He said, you guys lied in so many words. Um, And so I guess I see Roberts as a little bit more independent now, and I see Kavanaugh as much more partisan and much more conservative than I did before.
0: Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for chatting.
1: Always a pleasure. Happy SCOTUS Day.
0: Happy SCOTUS Day. Happy summer vacation. Oh, yeah. The, uh,
1: summer vacation doesn't exist in a SCOTUS world, uh, <laughs> except for the justices themselves, right? School children and Supreme Court justices, they're the ones who get summer vacations. The rest of us toil away. <laughs> Mark Joseph
0: Stern covers the courts and the law for Slate. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, otherwise known by my Twitter handle, at Mary's Desk. The show is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. They're on Twitter, too. If you get bored over the weekend, come find us. And if you're looking for another podcast in your life, try out The Gist. Today, Mike pesca has got Hungarian diplomat András Simonyi on his show. He's done all the diplomat stuff. He's been an ambassador to NATO, an ambassador to the U.S., but he can also play a pretty mean electric guitar. And he's written a whole book about rock and roll and how it contributed to the fall of communism. Check it out. All right, everyone, I will talk to you on Monday.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?